Well, we're going to continue on in our sermon series, Portraits of Jesus. Uh, I sort of mentioned last week that we were in the middle of sort of a two-parter. Is there's, there's so much that happens in this one particular story that I didn't want to cram it both into one week, just simply because uh, I think parts of it you really need to be able to retain. And if you have too much information given at any given time... Uh, you sort of just lose a little bit in that trying to stuff it all in. So some of you, if you're paying real attention, will notice this is actually part of the scripture verse that was read last week. It wasn't a typo. It was deliberate. Uh, I just didn't tell Major Mandy that, so I'm sorry I, I didn't tell you that before. But uh, if you want to open your Bibles and keep them open to that story in Mark chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. And so uh, because it's a two-parter, what we'll do is uh, do a previously on, uh, just to sort of let you know what happened in the last last week. Uh, Jesus uh, is being hounded by a whole bunch of people. There is a large crowd gathering around him. Everywhere he goes, he's preaching, and he's preaching with power. He's healing people. Uh, he's performing miracles. Uh, we've followed him so far, and he's done a, a few things. He's uh, exercised a couple of demons. He's healed uh, some people with leprosy. He healed someone who had a twisted uh, and, and sort of messed up hand. Uh, He's done all these amazing things, uh, and he gets into a boat, and he travels from one side uh, of the countryside to the other, and then when he gets out of the boat, there's a huge crowd there to greet him, and he continues on in his, uh, his prophesying, and he's healing, and he's doing miracles. And as he's walking around, there's this guy named Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue, and he comes up to Jesus and says, my little girl is sick, will you come and, and heal her? Uh, and Jesus immediately departs and goes to, to with Jairus to, to heal the little girl. And while he's going there, a woman who had an issue of bleeding for over 12 years uh, touches the hem of his garment and is instantaneously healed. Uh, and Jesus has this wonderful line. Uh, he's, he's, you've got to imagine the scene. He's there on a dusty road. There are hundreds of people crowding around him. There's jostling. Everyone's trying to get there in a hurry. And Jesus just sort of stops and goes, who touched me? This is, this is almost like, uh, have you ever gone uh, shopping on, on uh, Black Friday, you know, at midnight, and you get 100, 200 people who all want to rush the store at the same time? It's like someone right in the middle of that pack stops and goes, all right, who touched me? And, and it just says in, in Scripture, uh, one of the disciples, I think it was Peter, simply because of the way Peter uh, uh, acts most of the time in Scripture. It's more like his nature and character. Uh, Peter says to Jesus, uh, Lord, look at all these people. Like, does it really matter? Like, like one of these, it has to be one of them, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 power went out of me. And he confronts the woman and says to her, my daughter, your faith has made you whole. And that's what we talked about last week, that healing process and the fact that she reached out and touched the hem of his cloak, which in and of itself was a profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along here in Mark chapter 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And what I want you to do, just briefly, I know a lot of the times when we look at Scripture, we sort of imagine ourselves in the story as either Jesus or we sort of imagine the story as one of the disciples. We insert ourselves into the narrative. You do this when you're reading fiction books. When you, when you read a fiction book, you usually imagine the, the lead character is not unlike yourself, right? You put yourself in the lead role. Um, and so uh, just for a moment, I want you to imagine what it would be like for Jarius. First of all, the way that he gets this news, someone just walks up to him and says, hey, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Okay. 
They don't teach you that at training college. That is not the way, as a minister of the gospel, you're supposed to deliver news, right? You don't walk up to someone and in front of everyone say, hey, don't worry about it anymore, she's dead, let's move on. Like, that's not a, that's not a thing to do, right? Uh, and so just imagine Jarius for just uh, one second. Put yourself in his position. Uh, what is he feeling in that moment? And how would you feel in that moment? Uh, I, I imagine in that moment, Jarius has been crushed. His spirit, uh, almost like someone's reached into his chest, pulled out his heart and just went, it's gone. Because I'm not a father, uh, but I have a niece and nephew. And I can imagine what would happen if someone came up and just told me, hey, your niece is dead now. What that would do to me on the inside. Some of you are parents, some of you have kids, you, you know what that would do to you if you got that message. I think sometimes we overlook Jairus in Scripture because the focus of this story is Jesus, which is rightly so, but we sometimes forget that Jesus throughout all of Scripture actually deals with human beings, real people. And ministry is not always as uh, clean cut as we would like it to be. Ministry is often messy. The call of God on your life is sometimes very often messy because it always has to do with dealing with people and people in and of themselves are Messy, let's be honest. Everyone has history. Everyone has a backstory. You never know what your words are going to do to trigger a person because of something that's happened in their past. You never know if you're going to upset someone by saying something, even if you didn't mean to. People in general are messy. And so we sometimes overlook Jarius here in Scripture, maybe his gut punch reaction. We're not told what it is. We're not told what his reaction is. I can imagine him, uh, and this is not in Scripture, but I can imagine it that maybe he just sort of drops to his knees. He doesn't have the strength to go on anymore. My, my daughter's dead. What's, what's the point? And what's really interesting is, is then Jesus. Jesus says, it says in this, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Again, we see Jesus demonstrate that sometimes in your faith walk, you need to put trust when there is no evidence of what you want is going to happen. Sometimes in your life, God is going, is going to expect you to take that first step of faith with no guarantee of what you're actually stepping onto. Uh, some of you may have had this. Some of you, uh, if you've ever moved jobs without really knowing, if you've ever moved cities without really knowing what's going to be at the other end, I've got to tell you as an officer, uh, my wife and I, we move around. We have no kids, so it's easy, sort of uh, easier, I should say, to move us when the need arises. And so we've had uh, a couple of two years appointment and one three-year appointment. And every single time you get this phone call, I'm not sure if any of you know how this, these moves work, but essentially what happens is one wonderful day in, in in May, you get a phone call, uh, your phone rings off and it says the divisional commander on the ID and you pick it up and you say, oh dear, what now? And they say to you, this is where you're going. And the first thing you do is you jump on the computer and Google, do they have a Starbucks? I'm not going to lie, that's what I've done in all three of my appointments. I know you're looking for something a lot more spiritual from me, like I, I looked up the size of the congregation or I looked up what was happening. No, I Google if there's a Starbucks there. And then I say to the divisional commander, yes. I've never yet said no. I don't know if you're allowed to say no, but I always say yes. 
But when you move to that new city for that new job, or if you move even in the city to a new position or a new job, there's a, a, a scariness there, yes? There's some uncertainty there. And a lot of times when Jesus asks you to step out in faith, he doesn't yet tell you what's going to happen the six or seven steps down the road. And that's scary, and that's why we call it faith, not a guarantee. And this is... Scripture continues. He says this, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of uh, uh, the brother of James. So the two brothers, James and John, and then Peter. These were three of Jesus' disciples. And what Jesus is showing us here is that some things are public and some things are private. And I think in our lives, we get into a lot of trouble when we take the private things that should stay within a, a certain group of people and we make them public for no other reason than it makes us feel important. Sometimes it, it makes us feel good when we're in the know. When you know something about some situation, it makes you feel like you have a certain amount of authority or a certain amount of power or a certain amount of clout. And sometimes what we like to do as sinful humans is then make that public so people know how important we are. And sometimes in Scripture, what we see is some of the miracles that Jesus do are public. When Jesus fed the 5,000 people, I wouldn't call that a private miracle. There was a few people there, at least 5,000. And then there are some times when Jesus does a miracle and then says, don't tell anyone, this is just for you. Usually they don't keep their mouth shut, they run straight away and start telling people, that's another, that's another issue altogether. And, and, and this is true in all things, uh, especially in the, in the age in which we live of social media. If you ever look at your Facebook feed, when I, when I read down, there's usually about half of the content I don't need to know. It's something that's personal. It's something that's private. It's something that shouldn't be put into a public forum with no safeguards around it. And here's why. When I walk up to you and I have a conversation with you, you can tell what I mean by the inflection in my voice. You can tell whether or not uh, I'm asking a question or if I'm making a statement. You can tell by the way I speak to you, and you can tell based on our, our previous relationship how that interaction is going to go. Yes? You, sort of, you agree with that statement? The, the problem with the digital age in which we live in is because we've sacrificed punctuation on the altar of expediency, there's not usually punctuation when people make statements on the internet. When you read Twitter, you have a certain amount of characters to fit everything into, and if you need to get rid of a comma or a question mark in order to make it fit, you will do that so that you can get the message out. And the problem with that is then what we read isn't what's intended. And so what I would ask of you is, is to be very cautious and very uh, careful in the way that you uh, uh, deliver information on the internet. Now, part of you is saying, what has this got to do with Jesus? Everything, because you're a Christian. Because you're a Christian, what that means is you're a representative of Christ in this world. Whether you want to be or not, if you put that label on yourself that I believe in Jesus, you are then representing Jesus to the world. So your words have weight and meaning behind them. And so when you then say, I'm a Christian, and then you get on Facebook and start blasting people and making noise for no particular reason and sharing things that you shouldn't pe do, people don't actually look down on your character first. Most people will look at you and say, man, that person's a Christian, and they're acting like that. Man, I don't want to have anything to do with that church. I don't want to have anything to do with that religion. I don't want to have anything to do with that Jesus. Jesus says that you are the light of the world. 
that your job as a Christian is to carry his name and his word and what he wants people to do out into the darkness. And if you're engaging in ways that you shouldn't be engaging, then you're carrying a message in vain. In fact, if you to go through and read the Ten Commandments, one of them is you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And what the actual Hebrew uh, transliteration of that uh, commandment is you shall not carry the Lord's name in vain. Not take. It's not about blaspheming, though don't do that either. What that passage is about is don't go out into the world and say you're a Christian, then act like you're not. Don't go out into the world and say, I'm a Christian, I believe in in love, I believe in in this, I believe in forgiveness, I believe in grace, but then don't show any love, grace, or forgiveness. When you look at some of the Pew studies that happen, uh, 80% of people, non-Christians, when they are asked to describe Christians in a single word, 80% of people will respond hypocritical. Not loving, not graceful, hypocritical. Some things are public, some things are private. In verse 38, it continues, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, this is uh, Jairus, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. I haven't got it in my notes, but don't make a spectacle when you don't need to make a spectacle. Right? These were professionally paid mourners. These were people that you could hire to come to your funeral event so that people thought that the person who was passed away had a lot of friends and was a very important person. And they would come. I know, good job if you can get it, right? Go to a funeral and cry and get paid for it. That's, that's what their job was. And, and, and Jesus comes into the midst of this. When he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. And this brings us to a point that Jesus sees things just a little bit differently than we do. When you look through Scripture, Jesus is constantly seeing and doing things and observing the world in a different way than you and I do because of the nature of him, because he is Jesus, the Son of God. And so when God looks at a situation, it is not the way that you and I look at the same situation. And we should be really happy for that because if you and I look at ourselves, if we were to reflect deep within, we would see that you and I are sinners and that we don't deserve grace. But when God looks at He doesn't see that. He sees the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, and that's what he sees, and then says, that's not a person who is full of sin, who deserves shame. That is my son or my daughter, and they deserve the inheritance of grace. And, And so you should be really happy that Jesus sees things differently than we do. Because if he didn't, then you and I have a single destination, which is hell. But Jesus sees us and says, they've repented in my name. They love me. They've acknowledged me as Savior. That is my son. That is my daughter. And they are going to sit in heaven and worship us for all eternity. The people around had an interesting reaction to Jesus. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the... Okay. He put them all outside. Uh, It's a very interesting phrase to me. I know. This isn't in my notes either. I like to get sidetracked. Welcome to church. He put them all outside. We've seen that Jesus actually loses his temper or gets agitated a lot more than we think he does in Scripture, right? Every single time we've we've gone through some of these uh, stories, we've seen that Jesus gets agitated, he gets angry, he yells, he does stuff, he acts like a human because guess what? Jesus is 
human. He's 100% man and 100% God. And so we see this, but he put them all outside. Can you sort of imagine the subtext of exactly how he put them all outside? I don't know. I don't know if he just sort of like pointed and everyone got the message or if he, he, he rose his voice above the din because it said that they were all mourning, they were wailing, they were making noises, they were very loud and distracting. So he, if he talked to them, he had to at least raise his voice high enough to get across the level of everyone else. So maybe he yelled, maybe he shouted. I don't know, but he told them all to get out. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, which is uh, Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. As a Christian, people are going to laugh at you until they see what Jesus is capable of. When you step out in faith and you say, I can do X, Y, Z because of the power of the Spirit of God that dwells in my life, people who do not know Jesus and who do not know or have not experienced that power are going to laugh at you until they can experience for themselves. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, become a Christian and then no one's ever going to mock you again. Become a Christian and everyone's going to think that you're a good person. Become a Christian and everything is going to sail in your life. Become a Christian and you're never going to suffer again. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. In fact, one of the, uh, my fondest Scripture verses is when Jesus said to his disciples, as much as people hated me, they're going to hate you all the more. As much as, as, as people think that I'm bad or people are going to put me to death, they're going to persecute you as my followers even more. He guaranteed suffering. He didn't say you never would suffer. Jesus said that you need to go away and sell your cloak and buy a sword to defend yourself. These, these are some of the pictures of Jesus that we skate over in Scripture. He says that your life could end badly as a Christian. People are going to laugh you. That's, that's at one end of the spectrum. If you look at the lives of the disciples, uh, uh, pretty much all of them ended badly. Uh, there's only one of the disciples, of the original disciples, whose life did not end in, in uh, a, a brutal death. Uh, uh, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, and not for lack of trying, by the way. He was, he was boiled alive by the Romans, uh, and he didn't die. And it freaked the Romans out so much that they exiled him to the island of Patmos because they wanted to get him out of the way where he couldn't freak anyone out anymore. Because if you're thrown into a boiling pot of oil and you don't die, that's a little weird, yes? Right? Uh, uh, Mark, the guy who actually wrote this uh, account that we're, we're reading, uh, was killed in the city of Alexandria. Uh, he was tied behind a chariot that was raced through the streets uh, and then thrown into a prison cell after that. And when he didn't die, they did it again the next day. And then uh, there was not enough left of his body that they actually had to cremate him because they couldn't find all the parts for a proper Jewish burial. Being a Christian can end badly for you. Peter was crucified uh, upside down. Paul was beheaded. The brother of Jesus, James, uh, was thrown off the top of the temple. Uh, out of, out of the, the, the top of the temple, he fell some 30 feet. And when he didn't die, he was laying at the, the foot of the temple with broken legs. They went and stoned him because, again, he didn't die and it freaked people out. Now, I tell you this. Because, not because I think this is how you're all going to go. 
there's a large spectrum of persecution for Christians. Sometimes people are going to laugh at you. Sometimes people are going to get rid of you as a, a friend or an acquaintance. They're going to disown you. Sometimes family members will disown you because you follow Jesus. Sometimes you will lose your employment because you take a stand based on what Jesus asks you to do. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. People laughed at Jesus because people will laugh until they see what Jesus is capable of. Verse 41, Taking her by the hand, he said to her, uh, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. I like the version that was read for us uh, earlier. Little girl, get up. Not just arise. I think arise uh, is a fine word. It seems to me to be a little gentle. It's It's like what you say to someone, Oh, just wake up. You'll be fine. I like the NIV. It's a little more, Yo, up. Right Now, if, if some of you have ever dealt, dealt with kids who are asleep, you will know that the gentle, oh, little one arise, that's not going to work, right? Like, I'm getting some nods. This is fantastic. If you want to throw in an amen in there, you can. But look, little kids, when they're like out, out, you got to go, come on, up, 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 up. When I was a, a, a youth worker in Australia, we would have sleepovers in the cause. We would have lock-ins. They were fantastic. And my favorite band is a band called Nightwish. They're a heavy metal band from Finland. And what I would do at 7.30 in the morning when it was time for them to wake up is I was, would get back onto the chapel computer at the back. I would crank up the sound system in the chapel as loud as it could go, and I would blast heavy metal music. It was fantastic. You should have seen them like little prairie dogs just... <laughs> it was amazing. Little girl, up. And one of Mark's favorite words, immediately. The girl who had been dead gets up. And because she was a young kid, she didn't know anything was wrong, so she just gets up and starts walking around. Have you ever seen little kids not knowing what the situation is, not really caring? I'm just going to get up and walk. Right? It happens. And again, the family, because that's who was there, were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give us something to eat because when you wake up from a nap, usually you're hungry. That's me. Get, get the girl a snack. She's been through a bit. She was sick. She died. She's alive now. Give us something to eat. But that word immediately. It's fascinating to me. Because I believe when Jesus calls that there is an immediate change in a person's life. Now, some of you are not going to like me for this statement. That's okay. We can talk about it later. I believe when a person truly and honestly encounters the resurrected Christ, there should be an immediate change in their heart. Now, I'm not saying that once you, be, once you meet Jesus, then suddenly, ooh, sunshine, roses, lollipops, you're never going to sin again. You're never going to be tempted again. That would be nice. That doesn't happen. But there should be an immediate change in a person's heart. And what I would say to you, very cautiously, that if there isn't that immediate change, I would question whether or not they really encountered the real Jesus. Or whether or not they maybe just had an emotional response to a situation. I'm not saying emotion is bad. I like emotions. God gave them to us. They're good. But sometimes we have an emotional response rather than a transformational experience. And when you meet Jesus truly and properly, when Jesus calls you truly and properly, there is an immediate change in a person's heart and by extension, their life. 
because the old stuff that they used to do isn't what they want to do anymore. When you meet Jesus, it should trigger a change in you. For this little girl, the change was pretty obvious. When she met Jesus, she went from being dead to being alive. And I tell you, it's the exact same for every single one of us. We were dead in our sins. And then we met Jesus and we became alive in him. That's what scripture tells us. Even though you were dead in your trespasses, yet through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are now alive to live in him. Not in your power, in his. Not in your timing, in his. When he calls you, there is a change. So the question that I have for you today as we end our time together is simply this. Have you truly had the change? Has your heart truly been changed? If it has, fantastic. Hold on to it because the further and farther that you go in Christianity, the more that that little change, uh, it can become uh, uh, obfuscated by other things in your life. Hold on to it. Remember what you were, not to glorify in it, not to reminisce in it, but to remember where you were so you can revel in what Christ has done for you. To keep that passion alive. I tell you, I've been a Christian since I was four years old, and sometimes there are days when it gets difficult to see where this is all going. Hold on to that moment that you realize that Jesus died for you, that Jesus did everything for you, that he loves you, and that it's by his incredible grace that we are saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that each one of us, if we're a Christian, we can hold on to that moment where we knew that you were truly the Lord and Savior of all things, that it was by your might and your power that we are saved. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't truly know Jesus, the real Jesus, who revealed himself through Scripture powerfully, that they come to know him personally. Lord, we love you. We know that that first step of faith is always difficult because we, we don't know what's on the other end. So Lord, I pray that you give each one of us faith that makes us capable of stepping out, not in our own power, but in yours. Lord, help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world because the world needs us. The world needs you. So help us, Lord, to be the ones to carry your name into the darkness. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your son's precious name. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you'd like to stand